I turn in your Bibles, if you will, to this wonderful gospel passage that Doug has read for us earlier. It's found in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, if you'd like to use the Bible, it's provided there for you. You'll find that on page 973. 973. Two Sundays ago, as we started our missions conference, and then last Sunday, it's Fotos Romeos brought such a powerful message. We continued in this theme of the gospel of reconciliation. The gospel of reconciliation is going to be our theme here through these uh, weeks leading up to our celebration of the resurrection and even for a Sunday or two after that, Lord willing. Now, a number of years ago, I was here on a Monday morning. Uh, that time our offices were closed on Monday morning and I was here getting a few things together uh, to go to a conference uh, a number of hours away. I was going to be gone for a few days and as I was leaving that morning going out the door over here near where the flagpole is now I was in quite a hurry because I had to meet some other men who were going to this conference with me, a pastor's conference. And as you can imagine, I wasn't really excited when someone came walking across the parking lot, called my name, and I thought, oh, of all the times to get held up. And um, yes, pastors think like that on Monday mornings. And Sunday mornings, too, sometimes. And I recognized the man as a gentleman and who had been a guest at our church for a few weeks, along with he and his wife, two little boys. And uh, he said, I've got to talk to you for a moment. Pastor Sam, I just have to talk to you. I said, well, I'd be glad to make an appointment. I said, I'm on my way to a conference. I'm actually picking up some uh, fellows that are going with me. He says, I, just, I need to talk to you so badly. He, and I was looking in his eyes, and I could see uh, the sincerity of what he was saying. He said, I, I just don't get it. I, I just don't get it. I want to believe it, but I, I just don't understand it. And I asked him, what, what are you talking about? He said, this message that you preach, this message of knowing that you are accepted by God, knowing that you're right with him and that heaven's your home, I, I just don't get it. I, I, I don't understand it. And I, I needed to go, but just the Spirit of the Lord saying, no, this, this is the appointment. So I began to ask him a few questions. And then thinking of how I might best share with him, I said, let me tell you about a miracle. And I think it's a miracle that if you will listen for a few minutes, you can understand the truth of it, and you can, you can really experience this. He said, I want to, I want to. And so that morning, standing out here, outside the door, 
I shared with him about this miracle. It's the miracle I'm going to describe for you today. If it were just you and me standing outside on this beautiful day, I'd tell you about this miracle. Whether you're a child here today or whether you're way up in years, I'd share this miracle with you. Because this miracle is your greatest need. I don't know what you may think your greatest need is. But this is your greatest need. It's your greatest opportunity. I don't know what you might think is your greatest opportunity in life. But I assure you, what I want to share with you is your greatest opportunity. And it's your greatest privilege. Regardless of achievements you've had in life, any that you will attain regardless of any accolades that may come your way for great achievements, nothing is as great as this privilege of this miracle. I'm talking about the miracle of reconciliation. The miracle of gospel reconciliation. I want to begin... As I share this miracle with you, by reading this passage of Scripture that Doug read for us earlier, I want us to look at it again because you're going to notice that we desperately need a miracle because of what is shared with us in this passage. We need the miracle of reconciliation because this is what God says in His Word about our situation. Verse number 10 of chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things that are written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that is the friend of God, the one who knew God, the promises of God were given to him, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, those who are Jews and Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise through faith. Now, I want you to notice here that our situation is such that we need a miracle because God here is describing 
the relationship between you and him, me and him, as one of irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences naturally exist between God and you. Irreconcilable differences. Did you notice two words here? They're both used five times. Why are there irreconcilable differences between us and God? Because of these two words. Notice the word law. You see the word law in this passage? It's used five times. The law. And then the word curse. Also used five times. The law, which means... God's standard, God's righteousness, His holy standard, the law. And then our condition, our unholiness, our penalty, the curse. That is how far the differences are between sinful human beings that we all are and a holy, perfect God. The law, God's standard, our failure, our penalty, the curse. Now those are irreconcilable differences. Why? Because... The two inabilities. Why can this difference between God and you, why can it not be brought together? Why? Well, there's two inabilities. First of all is our inability to keep God's law. Our inability to keep God's law. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why are we under a curse before God's law, God's standard, God's requirements? Because cursed is everyone who does not abide by, what's the next word? All things written in the book of the law to do them. It is not say most of the things, all of the things we are to do. And if we do not do all those things that are the requirement of God, a perfect God, then we are under a curse, the penalty for that violation of that law. That's our inability. We can't keep God's law. We can't keep God's law, not just because we, we sin, but because we are sinners. The problem now, listen carefully, is not with the law. 
Make sure that when you read in the Bible or you're trying to understand about the law of God, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. God's law is perfect and holy and good, the Bible says. God's law is perfect, but God's law shows us two things. God's law shows us His requirement and shows us our own reflection before His requirement. It's like this. The the Bible says the, the law, God's law is like a mirror. It shows you what God's standard is. It's so perfect and holy that you can see your reflection in it. And guess what you see in your reflection? <laughs> it's not good. And maybe you say here on Time Change Sunday, the bad one, it really wasn't good this morning when I looked in the mirror <laughs> and saw you know, bags the size of small suitcases hanging there. The law is a mirror. God's law is a mirror. But guess what? Listen carefully. God's law does not provide any soap. God's law just shows you what the standard is. Shows you your reflection that you have broken the law. Your face is dirty. You're dirty before the law. But there's no soap in the law to wash away the dirt of sin. The law of God just shows you that you have sinned. Shows me that I've sinned. But does it show me a way to cleanse me from the dirt? There's an inability here. We have an inability to keep God's law. But now once you notice there's another inability here. And this may... Surprise you at first, but listen carefully. There is God's inability. What are the irreconcilable differences between us as sinners and a holy God? There is our inability to keep God's law. And there is God's inability to break His law. God cannot break his law. Why? Because the law is an expression of himself. The law is a reflection of who God is. Perfect, righteous, and holy. The, the law of God is an expression of his nature. God is perfectly just. And according to his perfect nature, as a perfectly just God, God must reward righteousness and he must punish sin. If God does not do that, then he's denying his own law. He's denying himself. And if it were possible, he would destroy himself. God cannot just look at your sin and forget about it and remain God. God cannot look at my sin and say, well, just start over and remain God. Because my sin must be punished. Because He's a just God. And so God will not deny Himself. 
God will not break his law. He won't break it for anyone. He won't break it for any of us. God will be true to himself. Because if he did not, then he would cease to be God and all existence would be a charade and a facade and a lie. Are you encouraged yet? You see, Sam, wait a minute. I thought we were having a message on the gospel. Well, let me tell you something. It's only good news after you recognize the bad news. When you recognize the bad news, then there's good news. And yes, there is good news. There's a good news that even though there is an irreconcilable, an irreconcilable difference between us and God, there is an inconceivable transaction that has taken place. An inconceivable transaction. Now, I use that word transaction very, very definitely and purposefully. Why? First of all, because of the verse we're going to look at in just a moment in 2 Corinthians 5. But also, as you're turning to 2 Corinthians 5, let me tell you about my friend that I was talking to in the parking lot that day. He was an accountant. He was an accountant. And while I was talking to him, and I was praying as he was wanting to know, Sam, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand how I can be right with God. I don't understand this. The Spirit spoke to my heart, gave me some thoughts and I said you're an accountant aren't you and he said yes I am I said have you got a piece of paper on you he said sure I do so I put my books and my stuff down I said do you have a pen he said yes so he took out a piece of paper he took out a pen I bent over the paper a few times And I shared with him this verse of Scripture we're going to turn to in 2 Corinthians 5. But then I drew him a diagram. And what I'd like to do today is just draw for you the diagram I drew for that accountant that day. Now this one's a little prettier because the wonder workers in the back designed it. Here's what I drew for that accountant. I said, I don't know what kind of accounting you do, but let me tell you about cross-accounting. Let me tell you about cross-accounting. So I drew a cross on that piece of paper. I said, we're going to do some accounting here. You understand accounting? He says, yes, I'm an accountant. I said, well, I'm no accountant. I was a 
theology major. I know there's a book of numbers in the Bible, but not much more beyond that. But I'm going to give you some good accounting. I said, now there's two ledgers here. On one side of this is your ledger. Let's write me up here. Me. This is your ledger. I said, now when you're trying to determine someone's wealth or the financial position of someone, you start out with assets. I said, now let me ask you, when it comes to your assets to God, you've heard me say that the Bible says we're all sinners. Yes, I heard that. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Yes. And the Bible says that the soul that sins, the person that sins must die and pay for it. Yes, I heard that. So what are, what are your assets then? And he said, I don't have any assets. I, I, for all that I've done, I have no assets. I said, okay, let's put a big zero there. As a matter of fact, you know, I shouldn't even put a zero because when it comes to our assets to God, we're like a zero with the line rubbed out. Nothing. And I said, now let's talk about your debts. I said, let's write that down. So write that on your ledger. I said, tell me about your debts. How many sins have you committed? He said, oh. I said, oh, well, hundred. Oh. Thousand? Oh. Hundreds of thousands. Maybe millions, Sam. I can't even imagine. So, so I said, so you're saying that you can't even number all your sins. You can't even be aware. And he said, right. So I just said, well, since we don't know the number, let's just put infinite here. Let's put the sign of infinite. Now, that's not exactly true because God knows exactly how many sins you have committed and how many things you should have done that you did not do. But we'll put down that they're infinite. So here... We're looking at your ledger. Your ledger says you have no assets to, before God. And you have infinite debts. What is your financial position before God spiritually? He said, I'm busted. I'm bankrupt. I said, that's right. So actually, on his pad, I wrote bankrupt on his side. I said, that's pretty bad, isn't it? He said, Yes. Well, I'm here. I said, okay. Now there's another ledger over here. This is Jesus' ledger. I said, now, let's look at Jesus' net worth spiritually. How many assets does Jesus have? The eternal Son of God. God the Son and the perfect God-man. How many assets does he have spiritually? He said, infinite. There, there's no limit to his assets. I said, okay, let's put that down for Jesus. His assets are infinite. I said, now what about Jesus' debts? Things that he's done wrong. 
evil that he's committed, ways that he's disobeyed the law and displeased his father, what are his debts? He says, well, you've been sharing with me. I've been reading that he doesn't have any debts. Jesus has never sinned. He, he's perfect. He's sinless. I said, oh, that's right. So let's put zero debts in Jesus' ledger. So Jesus has infinite spiritual assets. He has no spiritual debts. What is Jesus' spiritual condition? He is what? He said he's rich. He's perfectly rich. There's no limit to his riches. I said, that's right. That's right. I said, now, let me tell you what happened here on the cross because this cross is not just a ledger that I've written on this piece of paper for you. It is a ledger that really did exist and does exist, but it's not on a piece of paper. It's on the cross of Calvary. Here is a transaction. And look at the verse with me. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is using accounting terminology to describe what happened on the cross. If we read it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, here's the accounting of the cross. Cross accounting. For our sake, He... God made him, Jesus, to be what? Sin. The one who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the what? Righteousness of God. Notice the cross accounting. What is under the sinner's account? Sin infinite numbers of sin, though there's a limit to them beyond our counting, they're, they're to us infinite. All of those sins are put to Jesus' account. They're all put to Him because the Bible says God made Him to be what? Sin. Jesus became the sin bearer. He became the bearer of all our sins. And what was placed to the believing sinner's account? What's placed? Righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is put to the account of the sinner. So on the cross, you have this accounting. <laughs> The sins of sinners placed on the sinless Son of God to His account and the perfect righteousness of Christ the Son put to the sinner's account. That is gospel mathematics. And that's, that's great bookkeeping. Now that's what the Bible says was happening on the cross. Now listen, I said to him, 
What makes this become yours? Right now, at this time, for you, this becomes yours. This is the ultimate question. How does that transaction accomplished on the cross become yours? All eternity hinges on it for you. Where you will be 10 million years from this day, and hear me, my friend, you will be alive 10 million years from this day. And where you will be is determined by how what is described here becomes yours. How does that happen? Well, the Bible told us in Galatians 3 that those who are righteous have no righteousness of themselves, but it is a gift of God received by what? Faith. Faith. Now, dear friend, you better know what faith is and what faith isn't. Because if you miss this, you've missed everything. And if you lose this meeting, you've lost your soul. What is faith? Faith is not believing an event happened in history. Faith is not mentally agreeing that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior, That's not faith. Even all the demons of hell and the devil himself believes that. They know who Jesus is. And trust me, they believe it. A faith of a demon will not save your soul. Demons know much more about the life of Jesus and what he did than you will ever know because they were there and saw it. So what is faith? Faith can be defined this way. It has the idea of reliance, trust, Confidence. What's it mean? A good way of remembering it in English, I have found is this. Forsaking all, I trust Him. F-A-I-T-H. What is faith? It begins with repentance. I forsake. All I can do or have attempted to do to make myself right with God, I can't do it. I forsake all other hopes and I trust Him alone. I rely alone on the merit 
of the Lord Jesus Christ who was perfectly righteous and put his righteousness to my account and took my unrighteousness on himself and forsaking all other hopes, I trust him. That's faith. That is faith. It is faith in Christ. It's not faith about Christ. It's faith in Christ, relying in Christ, that your hope is in Christ. Your hope is not in a church that you joined one day. Your hope is not in a communion or a catechism. Your hope's not that you got baptized when you're a baby or you got baptized in a Baptist church or you've been baptized so many times in a creek, the fish know your name. It doesn't matter. The baptism does not wash away your sins. It doesn't matter if you've walked an aisle 10,000 times. And it doesn't matter how perfect your prayer was because no one has ever ushered, uttered a perfect prayer. You are saved not on the basis of a word that ever came out of your mouth or a step you ever took or a church you ever joined. You are saved by trust alone in the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That is faith. That's faith. Oh, the applause goes to Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace. Now, how do we know that this worked? I'm talking to the accountant out there. He's a good accountant. And just about every good accountant I know, I think they're from Missouri. Yeah. Show me. They want to see the receipts. They want everything. How do you know this? How do, how do you know? How do we know that this really was enough? Because of an incontrovertible declaration, there was a proclamation, an incontrovertible, absolutely true proclamation that Jesus himself made that what he had done was enough because he summed up his failing strength and with all that was in him yet as a human being, he shouted out on that Friday afternoon about three o'clock, it is finished. It's finished. It's it's finished. It's nothing. It's not almost done. It's not Jesus has done a good job. Now you add to it. It's finished. It's completed. What I have done here on this cross, nailed up between heaven and earth, it's enough. It's finished. Now, how do we know? Hey, out of the mouth of babes. That's right. (laughs) 
He uses babes and he'll use some rocks even if the babes don't cry out, okay? <laughs> How do we know the Father accepted it? There's irreconcilable differences between us and God. What Jesus did for you satisfied you, but did it satisfy God? who cannot deny himself, who can't break his law, who can't even bend his law for you. How do we know that your sins placed to Jesus' account and his shed blood and his perfect righteous life placed to your account was enough? <laughs> because there's an indescribable invitation when Jesus shared that great shout, it is finished. The word is tetelestai. It means it has been completed and it will stay completed. Tetelestai. What happened in that moment? In the temple on that hill across from Calvary, that curtain that had separated sinful men from a holy God through the centuries, that holy dwelling place of God's presence on earth represented there in the temple, represented in the minds of people that God was holy, they weren't. What happened that day? The Bible says when Jesus uttered that cry, that curtain was rent from top to bottom. Rent means thrown back. What was, Jesus, what was God saying? I'm satisfied. I'm reconciled. I haven't changed my law one bit. My son has kept it perfectly and he has taken his perfect life and he has substituted himself for sinners and I'm satisfied. I can be just and holy and I can be the justifier of everyone who comes to me by my son because my son has fulfilled the law in its demands and in its penalty. And now, my image bearers can be restored to me. The curse has been dealt with. Now you can come. And just in case that were not enough, it's like God put an exclamation point on it three days later. Because on the third day, we not only had a guarantee of a torn curtain, but also the guarantee of an empty tomb. Amen. Empty tomb. You know what that means? Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's alive. He died. 
that heart stopped beating. And his body went cold. And his breathing stopped. But just about sunrise on Sunday morning, that heart started beating again. And he rose from the dead. Why? Death could not hold him. Death only has claims on sinners. The wages of sin is death. He sinned never. He conquered it in his victorious life. And he conquered it for you and me by his death in our behalf. Death has no claims on Jesus and no claims on those who forsake all and trust him. No claims. No claims. The debt's been paid. You're not bankrupt anymore before God. You're righteous in Christ. We're not righteous in ourselves. We're still sinners in this body. We still do wrong. But I want to tell you something. When Jesus died for your sins, all your sins were future. Jesus did not die just so that when you got to the place where you would pray a prayer, now you're okay, but you're on your own from now on. Friends, if that's the case, we're messed up. Nobody here is going to die with all their sins confessed. You're not. You're not going to die in perfect fellowship with God. Every one of your sins confessed. That's not what gives you a perfect fellowship with God. Your perfect fellowship with God is based on a perfect sacrifice and a perfect son, Jesus Christ. And before you were ever born, he paid for all your sins. The first to the last. Paid in full. And the invitation is, be reconciled to God. So I said to that, Accountant that day, brother, be reconciled to God. Forsake all hope. Fear not. Don't be afraid that you've sinned too much. You've gone too far. Why are you here on Monday morning? The Lord's speaking to your heart. He's drawing you to himself. He's calling you. And I'm telling you on that ugly piece of paper, this is the gospel I can't draw it very well, but it's been painted in the blood of Christ. And he said, I believe. I believe. And he bowed his head and prayed a prayer of grace and mercy and thanks to God. And he was not saved because he prayed a perfect prayer. But he prayed because the work had been done in his heart before his vocal cords ever began to vibrate and the air ever entered his throat and he can even speak the words of the prayer, the miracle had already happened in his heart. Right? He didn't pray to get saved. He prayed because he got saved. You understand this, folks? It's the work of regeneration. It's a God in your heart. It's this that is the gospel. My friends, where's your hope today? 
I'm asking you, where's your hope? Now, you're here this morning, and I want to tell you something. I'm free from the blood. Your blood's not on my hands. Before God, and the best I know how, I've shared with you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will not stand before God someday and point your finger and say, Sam, you didn't tell me. I'm telling you, this is the gospel truth. Now, I'm asking you right now, right here today, I'm asking you on March the 10th, 2019, what is your hope of salvation? What are you trusting? Please don't tell me you're trusting some experience you had in the past. Please don't tell me you're trusting that you've done more good than you've done bad. Please, I beg of you, don't make that your hope. Please don't tell me that you're trusting that you prayed the, a perfect prayer. Don't, don't tell me that, friend. Is your hope in Jesus Christ? You see, the only reason any of us are accepted, is accepted for Jesus' sake. God has torn the veil open. He has raised Jesus. The tomb is empty. You don't have to earn God's love. God loves perfectly. He loves sinners. You say, I feel like I'm such a sinner. You're, ju you're just the person Jesus came for. Watch your hope. If you were to stand before God today, and he were to ask you, now this is not what happens, but if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? What would you tell God? Friend, I'll tell you, The youngest child can understand this by God's grace. And the most brilliant person in the world can never comprehend it. As Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, I was blind, now I see. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My only hope is Christ. I'm a sinner. I'm ashamed of myself. I shouldn't even be here in church today. I'm ashamed for the way I've lived this week. But my only hope is Jesus. I'm clinging to Jesus. Friend, that is salvation. That is salvation. And so I want to beg you today, be reconciled to God. The door is open. The way is open. God is reconciled to all who come to him through his son, Jesus Christ.